Somehow, life starts before you know it. Suddenly you're halfway through living it and all those plans, they just don't mean a damn thing. Living my life, Norma, I just don't like it much. Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of A Damn Fine Podcast. This is the podcast that loves Twin Peaks and loves to watch the episodes and then loves to come here and talk about it. Uh, I am Ron Richards, and with me is Tom Merritt. We love both the peaks. We love We're both the peaks. We're not partial to one or the yes, other. Yes. And, All the peaks. And there's a chill going through Twin Peaks because we both have colds, so bear with us. Yes. <laughs> you know, when you started that sentence, I thought you were going to say there's a chill going through through Twin Peaks because we're in season two. Oh yeah, well that too. <laughs> uh, but so it's just me and you today, Tom. No guests, so we're just gonna go right to the right to this quickly the episode because I'm dying to know what happened to James. Uh, right. So this is, is he still working on the Jaguar? <laughs> Has he learned how to fix a Jaguar? Why am I saying Jaguar instead of Jaguar? <laughs> You're gonna say that weird skit the way they say schedule, schedule, schedule. Um, all right, so we're looking at Twin Peaks Season 2, Episode 12, uh, German title, The Black Widow, um, which at the end of the episode, we'll try to see if we can figure out who The Black Widow is. It's the 20th episode of the series. The official name is Episode 19, right. lest you be confused. Just to clarify, just to be yes. all just the various Just to clear numbers. that up. Uh, so this aired on January 12th, 1991, and as we talked about last week in last week's episode, uh, this is the first episode back after the holiday break. So it's been nearly a month since um, uh, since Twin Peaks uh, yeah. was on TV. Well, right? we'll get to this more in the discussion of the episode, but last episode being what it is, and this episode being what it is, as the last episode before the holiday break and the first episode back, I yeah. think explains a lot about why Twin Peaks didn't get a third season. Well, until- well, and I could quantify that because, uh, you know, well, first first quickly to mention, it was uh, written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels and directed by Caleb Deschanel, uh, the, the old guard, the, the tried and true crew. No, mm-hmm. no, no, uh, a no. Go- a good team, really. A great team, yeah, but no stunt casting in terms of the writing or the directing. We're just going with the core writer's room crew. Uh, this is actually uh, Caleb Deschanel's third and will be his last episode that he directs of Twin Peaks. It, it's spent him. Yeah. Caleb it, could never, couldn't come back from this it one. It really did. But uh, this officially starts the rating slide uh, of Twin Peaks. If you remember, uh, I believe the lowest rating up to this point that Twin Peaks had gotten through the time was about 11 million or so. Um, it was hovering around 11 million before the big reveal, and then it you know, it, it burst up to 17 million, and then it was slipping, slipping. Uh, last episode, we have 12.1 million. A month passes by. The holidays is 1991. It's a new year, right? Uh, there's a young band called Nirvana that's getting ready to release a new album. Uh, and <laughs> Tom Merritt is picking a grad school. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm nervous about starting high school in the fall. Um, and... Twin Peaks kicks off 1991 with 10.3 million viewers, uh, the, the lowest point of the ratings at this point. Um, and it's still on Saturday nights at 10 o'clock. It doesn't come in last in its time slot, though. In a mm. weird twist of fate, it comes in first because what? no other network had any programming against it on the national level. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. So we, we we haven't actually kicked off the second half of the season for most people yet. So Twin be- Peaks just comes back early. Believe it or not, NBC had another Bob Hope special that started at 930, which got 28 million viewers. What special was I on? I have no idea. But uh, it just says it just says 930 Bob Hope and NBC special broadcast. 
So something on January 12th. Was it like George Burns 100th birthday minus 12 or something? I don't know. I mean, it, it, the thing is, Bob Hope special was a big deal, right? I mean, and it, that was and and twenty nearly thirty million people. Oh my gosh! I found out what it is. And what this is explains it? it. It's Bob Hope's Christmas cheer from Saudi Arabia. Oh, is this post the war? I I think it's yeah. I think it's Gulf War. Oh wow, yeah. that's crazy. Well, there Johnny it is. Bench yep. <laughs> is Angelian Marie Osmond. Oh my God, Angelian. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, so there you go. So Bob Hope, once again, two episodes in a row, kicks Twin Peaks butt in the ratings. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. I oh, love yeah, this. This is not post-war. It's pre, pre-war. Oh, so it's pre-war? So they had Christmas from Saudi Arabia before the this war is, even This started? is in the build-up. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Man, that's crazy. Oh, well, then. All right. So, uh, so that, sets the, that sets the scene. So it's January 1991, and Twin Peaks is back, and we kick things off with uh, Bobby in business garb. Bobby Briggs in his suit, ready. It's business to be, Bobby. Business Bobby, um, and he's making an entrance into Ben's office at the Great Northern Hotel. I would like to remind everyone that Bobby is still technically a high school student. So, technically, technically, uh, in name, not in 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 action. Uh, but he walks into Ben's office and he is startled to see the furniture has all been rearranged to be all piled up against the wall, building into a very large kind of almost like furniture pyramid. So to uh, uh, up against the wall, though. Some and, kind of edifice, yeah. Yeah, some sort of bizarre thing. And uh, Ben is crouched down next to it, still in his bathrobe, still unshaven, still you know, uh, sh- you know, shaken from his uh, experience in in jail. And Bobby comes in trying to follow up about the envelope that he had sent Ben with the tape recording of Leo talking to Ben about the heist. Ben kind of uh, snaps out of it for a moment and says that he was surprised Leo could master the technology of recording, which gets a laugh. Um, and then Bobby starts kissing Ben's butt and says how much he admires Ben. And Ben gives the classic line that admiration is for poets and dairy cows, Bobby. I don't know what that means, what says means Bobby, <laughs> echoing all of us. Um, and then Ben gets very serious and points to the furniture and, and draws the, the analogy that the furniture is a skyscraper. And up at that type of that skyscraper is a penthouse. There's a man in that penthouse. And that's who, that's who Ben is. Who is Bobby? And Bobby says, I'm in that penthouse, too. Very bizarre. Which is, which is the obvious answer that Ben wants, but yeah. Ben takes it as if Bobby has passed some sort of test. Right, exactly. Um, and so this allows Ben to say, okay, Bobby, I'll give you a job. And he hands him a very nice camera and a very long lens yeah. uh, and instructs him to follow Hank and take photos. And so uh, Bobby's got a job, and so he leaves Ben's office. And as he leaves Ben's office, uh, Dougie's bride goes running down the hallway screaming, still in her wedding dress. The new Mrs. Milford. Yes. So so, uh, now, so far, so Twin Peaks. This yes. isn't the greatest Twin Peaks scene, but it is within the character of the show. Yep. Uh, it's showing us the further breakdown of Ben. It advances Bobby's storyline in a way that makes sense. Uh, and we get a little like non sequitur Twin Peaks moment with Mrs. Milford running down the hall screaming. That, in fact, will lead to further developments uh, later on in the show. I, so far, I'm liking this episode at yeah. this point. I mean, it's, after it, this scene, it's familiar. It's not awful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so then after the screaming bride, we cut back to we cut to the sheriff's office where uh, Cooper in Twin Twin Peaks garb. Uh, I feel like, I feel like the 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 clothes the characters are wearing now are becoming very important. And Cooper is wearing uh, a flannel shirt, 
yeah. uh, a, a, along with some cargo pants, and he's very this is suspended Cooper, right? Yeah, yeah, sus- yeah it's casual Cooper. Casual uh, <laughs> but he's he's uh, he's talking to a real estate agent. He's looking at property in Twin Peaks, as he said earlier in the show that he was considering uh, looking into a place in Twin Peaks because he was so enamored with it. Um, he can't decide between two houses which one to, to look at first, so he flips a coin, and the coin kind of goes a little wild, and we get an extreme close up as it rolls around the table and it lands on another folder of a house that he wasn't previously looking at. Um, and that is a house that the real estate agent, you know, kind of dismisses as that nobody's been there for a year. It's called the Dead Dog Farm. I, I think you you missed a very important point, which there are donuts on this table. Oh, of course. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course, there All are right. donuts. So um, make sure that's clear. But so the moment Cooper finds out that she she describes the house as a puzzle that no one stays there long, he gets a smile on his face and says, "When can we see it?" Uh, which is it's funny. It's like it's almost like you could predict Cooper's reaction based off just the nature of how things get presented to him. You know, hey man, this is still Twin Peaks, right? Yeah. We've got donuts. We got Cooper. He's dressed differently, but there's a dead dog farm, which is sounds like a name that would have been made up by my friend Todd Hutchinson when he was trying to play a prank on me when I was a kid. But you know, whatever. <laughs> like, there's a mystery. Cooper's involved in a mystery. There's he, he's acting all Coopery because he shouldn't be interested in this, but he is because it's different. So far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. Uh, until we come to the outside of the sheriff station. Well, I would like to go back to the fact that. Um, Cooper flips the coin, and based on where the coin lands, that's how he makes the decision. A very Tibetan throw the yes. rock kind of mode of decision absolutely. making. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. I want, but I don't think it was th- thoroughly intended, though. Um, I don't, I don't get the sense that he was flipping the coin between the two. That's just where it it landed. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll get to the the house a little later at the end of this episode because I have thoughts about the house. Okay. But um, but so outside the sheriff's office uh, in the in the lobby area, uh, Dick Tremaine comes in. Wearing a very jaunty outdoors outfit that involves shorts, and I would like to remind everybody that it's mid-March. Well, <laughs> so. you know, uh, we suffer for fashion, yep. I guess. I guess so. But uh, so Dick arrives uh, in time to meet up with Lucy and Andy, who are meeting with the uh, Judy Swain from the Happy Hands uh, organization, who's Nikki's case manager, played by a young Molly Shannon. Yeah, you know, and not. Not the Molly Shannon we will come to know from Saturday Night Live. This is like uh, five years before Saturday Night Live. Yeah. But a solid performance as a case manager. I believe yeah. that she is Judy the case manager. Well, yeah, you know, she, as I should, of course. And I do. I did not remember that Molly Shannon was in it. I didn't either. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I actually, in preparation for one of our other episodes earlier this season on Damn Fine Podcast, I ran across Molly Shannon being listed as someone who had been in Twin Peaks as a minor guest star, but right. I didn't remember what her role was until we watched this episode. Right. And so she gives a little more background on Nikki, explaining that Nikki's been, he's an orphan, he's been traumatized, and that his parents were killed under mysterious circumstances, and that Nikki is the, uh, is the victim of a series of random misfortunes. Uh, so a little ominous news about Nikki. Uh, but this gets interrupted as Truman comes out of his office and, and tells Andy they got to go, they got an emergency at the Great Northern. Uh, still, still fairly Twin Peaksy. The whole Nikki thing is a little weird, but at least Lucy's here, and there's you know a mystery around Nikki now. He has random misfortunes that may be tied to the woods and the owls somehow. I don't know, right. um, but that's it's it's a small linkage scene. Great, well, yeah, Fine. yeah. They're just Not laying the they're on. laying the groundwork for what might be one of the worst things in Twin Peaks history. So. Yes. <laughs> but so we go back to the Great Northern, and it's uh, just in time to see Doc Hayward closing Dougie's eyes. 
as Dougie is dead in bed, um, and apparently it looks like he died of a heart attack, um, surrounded with uh, accoutrement of romance, let's just say that, uh, the Kama Sutra, uh, poetry, sonnets, uh, a book called My Secret Life, right, which is interesting. By Chris Garrity. Yeah, um, and there's some toys, there's a mask, there's some dolls, it's, it's, it's a wedding night, it's an average honeymooner's night. I mean, um, for primetime TV on a Saturday, it's yeah. fairly risque in 1991. Yeah. Truman uses the allegory that uh, that Dougie went out with his boots on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I, I imagine his boots were off, but yeah, sure, yeah, I, get yeah. the, I get the yeah, sentiment. I get, I, get the, yeah, I, get, I get what he's referring to. Um, but then uh, Dwayne, the mayor of Twin Peaks, Dwayne, Dougie's brother, comes in. Uh, and I, this is actually pretty sad as, as Dwayne is dealing with the fact that his brother died. Yeah. Like this, yeah. this was really like, it starts off being kind of wacky and funny, but then gets really kind of sad and touching, you know? Well, they were feuding and he didn't get a chance yeah. to resolve that feud. Yep. And he feels like he, he called it. He knew that this was going to happen, that he could never say no to a woman, you know, like things like that. And it just said, it was pretty sad. Um, you know, Dwayne refers to the book, my secret life as the murder weapon. Uh, and as he gets as he gets ushered out of the room, he uh, the bride is sitting outside, and Dwayne yells at her, call, calls her a sexual adventuress, and that she's a witch. Um, to which she kind of gets a little sad, and she starts talking to Hawk and says that maybe Dwayne is right, maybe she's been she's been cursed. You know, ever since high school, when her first kiss, uh, the boy's braces rubber band snapped, and his law his jaw got locked, and it ended up having to be broken in three places to be unlocked. Um, she feels she's been cursed. And then Hawk offers to cure the curse because he's got some familiarity with curses. And I realize Hawk is hitting on her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like in a very un-Hawk-like behavior. Yeah, uh, Hawk's under her spell. Maybe yeah. maybe there is something there. Yeah, and she says uh, she asks if he's the, if he's the sheriff, uh, to which Hawk says, well, I'm a pretty important member of the force. I'm, when, when big things go down, I'm there. And as he does, he leans against the door, and Andy opens it, and then Hawk falls into the room in a little bit of yeah. physical comedy, which is. Uh, so. This scene, if we didn't just have little Nikki uh, suggested as a possible cursed person, it's a little much to have two cursed people introduced yeah. to us in a row here. Yeah, uh, it's not an awful scene. I don't no, love the whole mayoral side story. It seems like we're getting a lot of side dishes. We're not getting a lot of meat in this episode. Well, the problem the problem is that, that we've already been served the meat. Yeah. And and now like this definitely feels like if this feels more like season two of a show than any than ever, this feels like a, a notch down in terms of what's going on. Like I'm supposed to care about any of this stuff. You know, and I mean, they're do, and they're doing the little Twin hijinks. Peaks train. The Twin Peaks train in this episode has been moving along. This is the first time I feel like it. It it almost left the track. It, it, it there yeah. was a bump there. Yeah. There was a bump. Yeah. So it, it, important to remember that because that tone goes throughout this episode. Um, and remember, we're in the we're in the valley here. We're starting to slide into the valley of the rough episodes. Everyone, so bear with us. Mm. Um, and nothing is more exe- nothing exemplifies that more than we cut to the high school where the wrestling coach is giving an inspired speech about another high school coach who broke the color barrier uh, and using that to compare the notion of adding Nadine to the wrestling team, Uh, (laughs) which is just weird. And then uh, so you've got Nadine uh, paired up with Mike to try out wrestling uh, to see if she's got the she's got the knack. And sure enough, she's strong as she's stronger than Mike, and eventually prevails. She lifts Mike up over his head and throws him down on the mat, showing that she's a force to be reckoned with. All the while, trying to get Mike to agree to go out with her. Uh, and the only thing about this this scene that got me excited was that Twin Peaks Phys Ed Department T-shirt. 
Yeah. Because in 1990 or 1991, my family went to California on a vacation and we went to Universal Studios. Ah, nice. And I in the gift shop was a Twin Peaks Phys Ed Department t-shirt. That's and great. I, and I bought the hell out of that shirt and I wore it that whole summer because I was like, I went to Twin Peaks High School. Uh, yeah. And, and it was the exact design. It was like one of those straight, like the design from the TV to the T-shirt. It was. So it's cool. funny, like watching this scene, that is the one thing that stuck out to me too. Yeah. It was like, ooh, I want that shirt. Right. right? Yeah, so that, was, I'm, I'm jealous that you actually had it. Somebody should make that shirt because it's not a complicated design. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but by the way, if yeah. you didn't realize it, we just went off the rails in this yeah. episode um, <laughs> if to carry out my train metaphor. Like... Uh, this episode was was going nicely. Yep. You know, it wasn't full steam ahead, uh, but it just it just took a crap, and it's it's not going to get back on the rails, is it? Nope, no, it's not, uh, because we're still in the high school. As now, it's after wrestling practice, and Mike's neck is sore, and he sees Donna, and he go he pleads with Donna for her help because uh, Nadine is after him and wants to date him, but he doesn't want to. And Donna says, what do you want from me? And he goes, well, can you pretend to be my girlfriend? So she says no, and Donna laughs and says no. And it's I still have a problem with Mike and Donna interacting in any way because I had no yeah, closure yeah. to the relationship. But Can you pretend to be my girlfriend, which as far as we know as viewers, you still are, but because right. we never actually saw you guys break up, I mean. And also, we don't know what to do with Donna anymore. Yeah. So. Also, <laughs> we don't know what to do with the plot right. anymore because <laughs> – We've gotten only side dishes. Exactly. I mean, the Cooper, the Cooper investigating dog, dead dog farm becomes important. Is at least tangential yeah. to what should be the main plot, but this show doesn't know what the main plot is yet. Yeah, no, and that's, that's the thing. Is that's that, that, very that, evident, and that's a great observation because I felt as if there's no glue tying these scenes together. You know, like it's just it's just quirky, quirky Twin Peaks for quirky. Yeah, it should Peaks usually sake. be like. Side story, yep. main story, main story, side story, story. side story. Like that yeah. would be the rhythm you would expect. And we're getting no main story. Right. It's just strong side story, weaker side story, weakest side story. Well, yeah. And, and talk about weakest of the weak side stories. The next scene, we go back to uh, Evelyn, uh, the, the mysterious blonde woman's house where James is, uh, is fixing the Jaguar for her. And James is sitting in his room organizing tools, maybe? Like. He's just look, looks like he's like just looking at sockets in a socket set. Like, yep, these are here. Yeah, and, I think I need a five millimeter and, and a half and, millimeter. <laughs> oh, and. this one snaps in this. Oh, okay. And as he does this, uh, Evelyn's husband's driver, who also happens to be her brother, comes in and just proceeds to introduce himself and dump exposition on James. Also, drinks a lot <laughs> yes. because he's a driver. <laughs> right. um, but he explains that uh, Evelyn gets beat by her husband once a fortnight, which is a weird, like, uh, all right, quirky time, you know, description. I bet you James doesn't know what a fortnight is. Um, and James yeah. asks James asked the brother, his, whose name is Malcolm, why doesn't he stop him? And uh, Malcolm explains, nobody stops Mr. Marsh, and then just leaves the room. I mean, sounds like a cool series of scenes I would like to see on a television show that he's explaining to right. me. It was just like, really, it was the most blatant, like, Twin Peaks has done a lot of blatant exposition scenes, but this is the most blatant of the blatant. Like, let's have a new character come in and just give you the information you've been missing about this weird situation. And look, I blame the network. Yeah. Harley Payton and Robert Engels <laughs> are, are like, I'm, it's like I'm watching a drowning man. They yeah. are writing for their lives to find a plot, to find a story. So yeah. I don't blame them. They were put in a somewhat impossible situation. Yes. 
And so uh, then we cut to the dead dog farm where Cooper and the real estate agent have arrived. And the oh, thank real goodness. St- yeah, I know. Th- and, and, and actually, this is a, a true thank goodness because we get, we get reminded of how great Cooper is. Yes, because, exactly. Um, they walk out of the, they walk they get out of the car and the real estate agent explains the, the the legend of dead dog and and how it's a local legend everything is a local legend by the way they're really playing up the Native American you know the woods metaphors and um, explains that you know the best and worst people come up, come uh, come up on a dead dog and how they handle it. it defines how they will be in the afterlife it's a whole big thing like that um, and so a little little mythology there for you as she's yeah. saying as she's as she's explaining this Cooper notices on the ground that there are recent tire tracks of a Jeep a four-wheeler wheeler and a luxury sedan um, but the real real estate agent says nobody's been there for years so why would there be recent uh, well, and I like the way that's revealed because he's like, yeah. oh, so people been staying here? And she's like, no, of course not. And then he admits like, well, obviously there's been this Jeep and the we, you know, yeah. like he's, he shows off his investigatory powers that exactly. are still and, there, even if he's suspended. And it's like, like a dog with his ears up, you know, like yeah. Cooper's like something's up and they go to the house and the door's open. So that's weird. Um, also, the curtains have been burned, but none of the house is burned, which I thought was odd. A little back background mm-hmm. notice. Mm-hmm. But um, they're looking in the kitchen and Cooper starts getting investigated in Cooper and notices that the, uh, that, the, that there is used cigarette butts and an ashtray on the, on the table and indicating people have been there. And he goes and looks in the sink and notices there's some baby laxative powder uh, in the drain because the water was turned off and whoever was there must have forgot the water was turned off. Um, and then he examines the table. We get some neat close-ups of him examining the table and then he finds cocaine on the seat. So someone's been I mean, there. This is a beautiful scene. Yeah, this like, is a great this scene. Is, this is a ruby in a pile of straw and dung. Yeah. This uh, is this is a great reminder of why we love Cooper and what yeah. is great about Twin Peaks. When he has something to do, it's great. It's just he hasn't had anything to do. And and it's it's really true to his character. Like this is who he is. He yeah. cannot stop investigating. Even yeah. when he's looking at a house that he would like to buy, when he should be thinking of like, you know what, maybe I'll just retire if this whole suspension thing goes wrong. Right. But no, he's like, he can't stop. Yeah. Uh, and and you could say, well, well, of course he's going to do this. He's trying to clear his name. But I don't get the impression that he's doing this to clear his name. He didn't pick Dead Dog Farm because he thought it was going to lead to evidence that would help clear him in the investigation. He's just being Cooper. Right, exactly, exactly, and we'll get we'll get to the investigation later on because as great as this is, I, I feel if it, it, it takes a bad left turn later in the episode, mm. but um, but yeah, but this scene was this is the best episode. This is the best scene of the episode. I would almost say if it weren't for some important information that you get at the end of this episode, you could just watch this scene and call it done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, because you get if you do watch this whole episode, you get treated to scenes like Dick, Tre- <laughs> Dick Tremaine trying to change a tire. Oh boy! Uh, yeah, so Dick uh, Dick is pulled over on the side of the road, and he's got a blanket laid out that he's sitting on, and he's turning the lug nuts on the tire. And every time he t- gets one off, he wipes the, the the grease off his hands, and he's got the manual out, learning how to do it. He's very annoyed. Little Nikki is in the car, sitting in the driver's seat, honking the horn, and it finally gets uh, to to Dick, and he yells at Nikki to get out of the car. So Nikki uh, comes all comes around, watches Dick work for a little, then walks away. And then all of a sudden. The tire falls off the car, the car falls off the jack, and it's very disturbing because, keep in mind, car falling off a jack on two legs is one of my own personal nightmares. Oh, yeah. Like, no, oh, this, that horrifies me. <laughs> honestly, this scene, if it weren't for the fact that it's part of an otherwise ridiculous plot line, yep. is very good. It's, yeah. a, it's a good Twin Peaks scene. Like, replace Dick Tremaine with somebody else yeah. and, and make Nikki a little darker already. 
and and you've got a very solid thing yeah. because you don't know if Nikki did this on purpose with some kind of powers, if he's manipulating, it kind of feels like he is, but then he gets all upset and he says, what if you die? And given what Molly Shannon told us earlier, we know that he's had a series of this and is, is, is it actually unfortunate or is he, is he possessed? It's, it's at this point, very interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that, that I found Dick trying to change the tire to be funny. Right, like, I, like, sure. like, I yeah, mean, yeah. like it, 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 the funniest that Dick has been. Like, I kind of giggled a if little. If I didn't know anything about him otherwise, then I'd be laughing along with you. Yeah, but um, when Nikki comes out, and I realize they're wearing matching outfits. I was like, oh god. Uh, is, yeah. yeah, I mean, at least that's true to character, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what Dick Tremaine would do. Yeah. So anyway, so now, so it's very, uh, very disconcerting as to what's going on, with Nikki, because you know, it's, it was, and, and Nikki was upset when the when the car fell down. Like he, you got to say, he and he says to Dick, he's, he says, you know, what if you die? You know, like he's been traumatized by the death of his parents. So, you know, keep that in mind as we move along with Nikki. Um, but so we go back to the sheriff's office, and Truman is there meeting with a Colonel Riley from the Air Force, who he introduces to Cooper as Cooper comes into the office, um, and he is investigating Major Briggs's disappearance. Um, he wants some more details about what happened that night. He asked Cooper if he had heard any animals, and Cooper said, "Yes, I heard an owl." And you get a sense of, uh, mm. you know, Riley. You Was know, that out what it seemed? Yeah, it means something. Um, and finally, Truman gets a little uh, impatient and says, you know, you know, lay this out for us. We need to, you know, let, we need to know what's going on. And Cooper says, you know, we know about the deep space monitors. We know what Briggs is working on. But then Colonel Riley takes out a map and points out that the messages that Colonel Briggs showed Cooper back in season one, remember the owls are not what they seem, did not come from space. They were uh-huh. sent. They were sent from the woods. And to which Cooper inquires, was this about the White Lodge? And Riley gets very tense and says, that's classified. Um, Oh, Riley obviously knows about the White Lodge. Exactly. Um, And so as Truman and Cooper are trying to make sense of what Riley's talking about, Riley is trying to explain the importance of Briggs' disappearance, explaining that while Major Briggs is working on the projects that he's working on with the deep space communications, he's also the greatest pilot Riley's ever known, and that actually his disappearance has implications that go beyond national security, so much so that it makes the Cold War look like a case of the sniffles. (laughs) I love that line. Yeah. And at the time, the Cold War was still... Was like still, a thing, right? Yeah, it was, is, it was dying, yeah. but yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, but it was fresh in everyone's mind, so. Yeah. Um, th- th- this could be the major plot line of Twin Peaks if it was given more scenes. Exactly. Like, this is, there's there's stuff going on here. There's important stuff that we're going to need to know later. And why did Briggs, you know, get disappeared? Uh, we have Wyndham Earl, we've talked about previously. We have this. Why are we spending more time with those stories instead of, now halfway through the episode this is the first touch of a main plot line right and and not only that but this is what we call you know for those listening who who aren't aware i do another podcast called i fanboy about comic books this is what we call a retcon because it's taking something that you think you knew happened previously and changing really what happened so we thought the messages came from cooper from deep space which is really interesting right because it's like oh they're coming from the giant or they're coming from another kind of thing. But the fact that they're coming from the forest, I was immediately disappointed. Oh, really? See, I yeah. never was. I was actually a little disappointed by Deep Space because I thought that felt outside of Twin Peaks. Interesting. I'm like, oh, UFOs. I don't know. I don't know yeah. if that fits. But when they come from the forest, granted, 
I had a little touch of disappointment like you did because I'm like, ah, they retconned this, right? I realized that. But I felt like it made more sense that we would get messages related to Cooper coming from some spirits in the woods than than aliens would somehow be trying to help his investigation. Yeah, I didn't necessarily think aliens, but I thought thought if it's coming from another dimension – it would come through space, you know, but yeah, I, yeah but I can see your point. It's there. still coming through from another dimension, yeah. though. Yeah, right? true. Yeah, but either way, it changes what we thought had previously. Yeah, happened, yeah. So, which is kind of eh. well, yeah. good news. You're going to get even more disappointed because yeah. we're going back to James. <laughs> so we go back to where James. Uh, James is now. He's in the garage, and you can tell he's been working on the car because he's got grease on his face. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. That that's a sign of working on a car, right? And uh, and he starts the Jaguar and shows that he's fixed it, that the axle is going to be fine. And Evelyn wants to know how he got so good at this, and he explains that you know you should. Well, see- he says the axle should be okay, <laughs> which doesn't really inspire confidence. Like, is it okay? Because the axle breaks them in trouble. <laughs> yeah, she did drive into a ditch. Sorry, um, you're saying. But so he he tells her about uh, Big Ed and how he's he's an even better mechanic. Uh, and then James immediately goes in asking about her situation with her husband and if she's afraid. And she says, tells him to mind his own business, and that shuts him up. Uh, and then he decides this is the, the perfect time to kiss her in the most awkward fashion I've ever seen. He, like, leans his head at an yeah. angle that it just, like, it just really is not romantic in any regard. <laughs> Apparently it worked, though, because she kisses him back. Well, yeah, and in between kissing, he asks her why she doesn't leave, and she just says it's complicated. Uh, and then they smooch some more in the car, but then they're interrupted by the car honking as her husband arrives home, uh, which is which which uh, she runs off to go meet him, and she tells him that it's you know it's not as bad as it seems. Well, hold on, she didn't really say much about Jeffrey, so if she says it's not as bad as she made it out to be, she didn't really make it out to be that bad. Nope, yep, it was I- the brother who did. Right. <laughs> It's just bad. It's just bad. Well, or they're in collusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. Hmm. So, uh, but James just sits in the car watching the husband come home, uh, which makes me wonder: Does she tell the husband he's there? I don't. I don't even want to know. Because wasn't the whole thing he had to fix the car before the husband found out? Yes. Yeah. All right. So that didn't work. There you go. So we go back to the Great Northern, where while all this other parts of the episode was happening, Bobby was following Hank, which made me think I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, that right? would have been a fun little side story, right? <laughs> but that's okay because we couldn't have seen that because uh, he's got an envelope full of photographs that he go that he's bringing to Ben, but he gets stopped uh, by Audrey in the hallway, and they do a little teasing, a little flirting. Uh, Audrey wants to help, and Bobby says, you can help me celebrate, and tries to kiss her, but she pulls away. The hell, Bobby? Yeah. It's just, Is he already bored with Shelly? Yeah. Is that what I, this means? I, I, yeah, because yeah, Shelly's not in the episodes. She's been yeah. two episodes now. Shelly's not been in. She's boring, staying home, taking care of Leo all the time. He's yeah, tired of that. Exactly. I guess that makes sense as a high schooler, though, right? Yeah. So, um, so Bobby heads into Ben's office, and Audrey goes into her little secret door. Which, once you know it's there, it's all you can see in that hallway. By the way, yeah, like it's not very secret. It's like, how does no one know that's there? Yeah. And so Bobby walks in to see Ben, and despite as awful as these episodes go, we get one of my favorite Twin Peaks things, which is Ben Horn dressed up like a Civil War general. I kind of think of him that way. Yes. Like, even though this is in a very dry period, yep. I, I, when I think of Ben Horn, I think of him either with the cigar, yep. you know, being on top of his game, or in his Civil War getup. Yep. And, and, and he's in the Civil War getup because he's setting up some miniatures, reenacting the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, but this doesn't stop Bobby from giving the photos to him and their photos of Hank. Ben gets very happy by this and has decided he's ready to hire Bobby, come back tomorrow for a full-time job. 
So, and by the way, it's significant that Ben is uh, is is dressed up as the Confederate side, yeah. the losing side of this battle, because he is feeling like a loser, and that's that's going to play into things as this story unfolds. Yeah, exactly. So uh, then we cut back to the Martells, where Pete is pouring some champagne and gives it. Wait, a, cut back to the Martells. Oh, we we haven't cut, been at the Martells. <laughs> where did the Martells come from? Why are we at the Martells? We just what? cut. Because we got to see what, well, Ben to Catherine, I can see that connection. Ah, okay. Knows? All right. So, Good work. So we're at the Martells. Pete is pouring champagne and giving a very dramatic toast where he's quoting Yeats. Um, mm. And uh, Catherine, Catherine is, yeah, I love Pete. Catherine is impressed and he goes, well, the only other toast I know is a limerick. And, she, and he starts to do it and she tells him, no, stop. <laughs> but they're cut off by uh, Josie in her maid uniform in the kitchen. Uh, and Catherine proceeds to taunt Josie. And just as Catherine is taunting Josie and telling her, you know, like, I'll give you all the respect and affection you deserve and ask her to put on her little maid's cap, I'm watching this, and I'm like, why, is Pete going to stand up for this or what? Just as Pete says, what are you doing, Catherine? Yeah, and, and good Catherine, for you, Pete. Yeah, good for Pete standing up. But Catherine says, "Aren't she, you being a little hard on her, Catherine?" <laughs> oh, I love Pete Martell. But Catherine explains that Josie should be lucky; she's not hanging from a tree, and that she did—you know—she killed her her brother, and she tried to steal her business, and she's being, as far as Catherine's concerned, she's being merciful. And Pete doesn't believe it; says, "Not the Josie he knows." Um, but then that doesn't stop Catherine from doing her own toast, or she toasts to Ben, to Josie, and to the woman who brought them down, her. So. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Here's to you, poodle. Oh, I love them. But I guess we just, uh, this we, is a kind of a useless scene, though. Totally all this useless. does is remind us that Josie got humiliated by yeah. Catherine. That's all it does. Absolutely useless. Um, so then we get back to the Great Northern where Cooper is talking to Diane in the tape recorder. So I guess while he's suspended, he's still keeping in touch with Diane. Like, is I that, guess, I guess she's on retainer. Okay. And so, Odd. yeah. And so he's telling her about the fact that his response to Windermerl was printed in the, in the newspaper, in the personal section. Uh, but Windermerl, this is very confusing. Yes. Because Windermerl had anticipated Cooper's move and sent his next move before the paper was even published. Yeah, the, which, by the way, all we've seen was a card right. with Wyndham Earl's move. Right. So it would have been perfectly normal for Cooper to put his move out in an earlier scene and then get a response. But they just wanted to jump to Wyndham Earl's next move. Uh, so, so they decided to retcon. They retcon again. It's so, it's so weird and unnecessarily complicated. I mean, I can't tell if it's sloppy or genius. It's probably sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of genius to think that Wyndham Earl is that smart, right? right. Like th this is the evil genius. Right. Well, and, and ultimately the whole point of this is that is Cooper realizing that uh, Wyndham Earl is toying with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he gives Diane a little update on his real estate hunt. Um, and he tells her about the dead dog farm and, and that the house is connected to the secrets of his case somehow. Um, and then we cut to him holding the tape recorder and holding the bookhouse boys patch in the other hand. I have no idea why, like reminding us that he has that patch. Well, it, I, I took it as he may not have lost his FBI authority, he still but he that. still has a a higher authority yeah. in some respects. Maybe. So uh, he gets interrupted by a, uh, a knock on the door, and it's Audrey, uh, the only person who comes to visit Cooper. And uh, she then presents the envelope of photos that Bobby brought to her father. No idea how she got them, but somehow she got them. And she thought that they'd be important to give to Cooper. And they are. we find out that they are photos of Jean Renault and Ernie and Hank and the drugs and the, the angry uh, uh, Mountie 
uh, yep. at the dead dog farm. Yeah. And and very conveniently, the, the, another knock on the door, and it's Denise. Hey, if this if this here was the main <laughs> plot of this episode, yep. this could be a good good episode. And if it, if it was the main plot of the episode and actually involves something other than things falling into Cooper's lap, right? Like if we saw things happening, yeah. Or he yeah. took he took any actions other than receiving a a, a set of photographs from Audrey that will. Uh, exonerate him and then yeah. handing them to the person who he needs. Like if to he had to it. work hard for them. Yeah, it's if very... that if that detection at Dead Dog Farm had led him to something that then led him to something. Very, yeah. very odd. Very, that's that's my problem with this, and we'll get more into this later on. But um, but of course, Audrey meeting Denise, and there's a lot of wide eyes going on as as Audrey is trying to make sense of Denise, and Denise is quite enamored with Audrey. Well, Audrey is jealous at first, yes, then confused, yeah. then giddy, then she kisses Cooper. She goes through a, a lot odd. of emo- a lot of emotions yeah. in the scene, right? Because at one I point, actually she liked that reaction. Though. So did I. I was I, I really liked that she was really inspired by the fact that the the DEA had female agents, uh, or before she realized, yeah, yeah. you know, what was going on, right? Um, but so she kisses Cooper. And then uh, Cooper hands Denise the photo, says, "This is what, what what we need." And Denise goes, "Okay, that's all well and good, but how old is that girl?" And then Cooper, and, th- and now we get a little more insight. Again, it's 1991, and Cooper says to Denise, "Well, I assume you weren't interested in girls anymore." And Denise explains, "You know, she still puts her panties on one leg at a time, if you know what I mean." Which is, uh, I mean, which is totally true, and like gender identity and sexual preference and all things like that people who dress up like women's clothes don't necessarily aren't necessarily yes. gay right this transvestite is, yeah exactly is a different thing yeah. than so many other things and, and I, this is not the most elegantly handled no but, by I, any but stretch, I was impressed but, that they that they approached it yeah yeah, yeah. so i uh, mean in a way though it is a bit of a cop-out for them to say, oh, no, he's just a guy who dresses up yeah, as a woman. Don't freak funny. out, America. Yeah. Well, anyway. But that's fine. That, that That is also a legitimate category. So. Yeah. So we cut to the diner where Ed is eating and Norma. Well, cut- why not? Why not bring Ed and Norma into this? Because, <laughs> you know, we don't have enough characters and different plot lines dangling out there. Sure. Let's let's talk. Let's have Ed and Norma talk for some reason. I, I felt bad last episode because I thought I was unreasonably harsh on the episode. But I feel like, Tom, you're catching up to me. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I, I like this one less than last episode. Oh, oh I, I argue. I, I say last episode was worse. but That's fair. You that's see, the, fair. The, the They're problem, very close. The problem with this episode is that it's completely... It's completely harmless and uninteresting. Yes. You know, like the, the level of horribleness of last episode is worse than this episode, but this episode is offensive in that it's just completely, it's yeah. bland, it's mediocre. Well, I think that's yeah. just the different perspectives. Like I can deal with the horribleness because at least it had some cohesion, whereas yeah. this episode, not as many horrible pieces, but doesn't take us anywhere. It doesn't yeah. do anything, and it blows opportunities. It's just sad. Yeah, and all, all this scene is is to remind you that Norma and Ed can't be together. And, yes. And that similar to season one when we got that really inspired outside at the gas station, Norma kind of you know c- talking about life to Ed and then breaking it off with him. Yeah. We yeah. get Ed's turn this time where he's basically explaining what life is and, you know, this is my life and I'm living it, but I just sure don't like it much. Right. And because he's yeah. obviously having trouble with Nadine and all this sort of stuff. And and Norma holds his hand and says, well, we, you know, we can make new plans. But Hank overhears this. And, well, a man with the dominoes sees yeah, exactly. them. I don't know. I well, assume it's Hank. Hank. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, 
and that's and, and that's all it is. But, okay, here's the thing. This actually could be a really great scene. It's touching. Yeah, it's yeah. well acted. I love it. Uh, I love Big Ed Hurley by the way. Yeah, it does in the episode, and it's not telling us anything new. We also had an elegant scene where Hank brought the plate of food and said, "Oh, this isn't for you, Norma," which. You know, he he already knows about her and Ed. This is reintroducing folks coming back from the holiday break yep. to their storyline. And I don't think they need to do that right now because they're not going anywhere with this in this episode. Right. Exactly. Oh, and, and well, no, they're going somewhere, Tom. And I'll tell you where they're going. They're going to possibly the lowest point of Twin Peaks of the entire Twin Peaks brand with this next scene. Well, where, we're going there. Yeah, where we're going there. The show's going there too. Uh, so we cut to the sheriff's office where Dick comes in from the rain looking for Andy, uh, and he explains to Andy there's a problem uh, with little Nikki, and he thinks that the Nikki that Nikki is either the devil or homicidal, and they have to find out what happened to his parents, and this is all because of the incident with the car, and Andy tries to make sense of this, and we get a shot of Andy's head. And a uh, image appears in, superimposed on top of Andy's head of little Nikki dressed up like a dime store Halloween costume devil. And then it blinks that, and then Andy snaps out of it and it blinks away and goes away. I, I was like, oh my God, they did. I forgot about this. So out of place. I so this. out of place. Like, just, it's like sitcom level. Like, yes. it's, oh, it's just bad decision. Bad. And again, <laughs> we already know. All yeah. of the things they're telling us from this episode, yeah. the 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 scene with Dick and Nikki told us all of this already. Yeah. They don't need to tell us this. And just the fact that the fact that they do the dub, what what's Andy thinking? Kind of inside his oh, head, you know, like gosh. the devil and the angel, kind of like, oh my god, it's not good. That's the low point. Um, so, but going on in Truman's office, uh, Doc Hayward comes in with the autopsy results and the mayor, Dwayne, is sitting there and Doc Hayward explains that it was indeed natural causes, a heart attack, there was no foul play, but Dwayne wants to know if he checked for witchcraft and that he wants to press charges. Uh-huh. But Hayward explains that they don't check for witchcraft in autopsies and Truman can't press charges because no crime happened. And so Dwayne starts ranting and raving how he's ac- he's accusing of uh, of the bride of, of of killing his brother with sex, and I I noticed Doc Hayward was very amused by Dwayne's outburst, which I part of me liked because it shows like a humanity of Doc Hayward, but also yeah, yeah. It's, also it's like kind of sad because Dwayne's dealing with this grief, you know, like and it's, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. But uh, Dwayne declares that he's going to sue her. He's going to file civil suits to keep her from getting any of Dougie's money, and he does this as he's leaving. And as he's leaving, Hawk interrupts him and he asks if he, if Harry's got any any of that Irish left because he wants to put it in some warm milk uh, for Lana, uh, and which is you know Hank, uh, Hawk in his his flirting mode, and then he we see that Lana is there with ha- with Hawk, and um, it cuts to a row of all the men, Andy, Dick, Doc Hayward, and Truman, all looking longingly at Lana while Dick starts reciting Romeo and Juliet. And uh, and Doc Hayward actually joins him to complete the recital, <laughs> just, just as her feminine charms are, okay. are wooing them. <laughs> I I could like this scene. Yeah. I I, lo- I love the Twin Peaksiness of all of them suddenly quoting Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, not the first time that Shakespeare has been quoted, right? So right. Th- that's it's kind of a cool thing. If we have this scene, we don't need the next scene. If we have the next scene, yep, we kind of don't need this scene. Exactly, because then the next scene, um, and it's hard, and it's and it's hard to. I was trying to figure out because I'm watching this on Netflix, right? So I don't see. Sometimes you can see where the commercial breaks are, 
but sometimes yeah, you can't. And I don't know. Right. There, there must have been a commercial break between this scene and the next scene. I, that I, that would that would make it make a little more yeah, sense, because, I guess. I still don't think you need both of them. No. I agree because the next scene cuts and the sheriff station is now empty. And Lucy is walking around, and the phone rings, and somebody for Truman, but she can't find Sheriff Truman. He's not answering his uh, the buzzer. She does the loudspeaker. He's not answering. But then she hears laughter in Truman's office, and she opens the door, and all the men are around Lana. She's telling funny stories and making them laugh, and Andy's pouring her milk, and uh, Lucy's just pissed off and slams the door, and that's it. So. Now, here's the thing. Both of these are fairly good scenes yes. to show that Lana has an undue effect on men. Yep. And they're both good in their own way. I think I prefer this one where she's just sitting around telling the story. But the one with the Shakespeare, you know, quoting is is quirky and fun, too. It's like they they wrote both these scenes and couldn't decide. So they just left them both in. Yep. Yep. Um, And then we and that whole kind of breaking up of not needing the scenes or whatever happens again now where uh, we cut back to the diner. And we see a woman enters with in high heels, and it's just a shot of her, you know, high heels as she's walking along the uh, the the diner floor. And then we cut to Ernie sitting at the diner eating his eating his fried chicken. And yep. then the woman walks up to to Ernie, and sure enough, it's Denise. And <laughs> she sits down across from him and starts saying, you know, listen, Ernie, I don't want to put the squeeze on you. And I know that you know, I know you, you've got, you made a parole violation. And she shows her DEA badge, and then she shows him the photos. And she says, you know, I don't want to have to do any of this stuff to you, so you better participate. Uh, basically getting Ernie in uh, on what's going to become a sting. Great. Great. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Which is, we know they've is, nabbed and Ernie. A, and this was a great scene. This was a yeah, fantastic done. scene. Awesome. We've paid off the pictures. Even though yep. it was a little, it fell too easily in Cooper's lap, at least it went somewhere. Yep. And so then we cut to the Great Northern where Ernie is doing his uh, impression of Chunk from the Goonies and just admitting to <laughs> everything. Uh, yeah. and, and he's explaining that they threatened him and that, uh, they threatened his wife and they threatened his family and that's why he's doing it and babbling, babbling, babbling all the while thunder and lightning is starting in the background, making it very tense and Cooper and Denise are getting very impatient with Ernie. They want to know what's going on with the drugs, but he won't stop talking about the torture, uh, that they did to him and making him do it. And he finally admits that there are four kilos of cocaine and that fight like, and this went on for way too long, by the way, it was and like, you don't need this. Really at all. Yeah, not at not at all. And so uh, so once they find out that there's cocaine and there's a buy happening, Denise says to Ernie, he's going to set up a meeting with them and she's going to pretend to be a buyer from Seattle. Um, and Ernie says, oh, I'm nervous and walks away. And so we set up that there's going to be a sting operation to catch it on Renault and Hank and the other guys with, and the, the Mountie with the drugs. So yep. this is this is interesting. This is something that could have been this whole episode. You know, sure. it, it will be yeah. the next episode, but still, this is like it was very painful to get there. And this is the answer to solve Cooper, get Cooper out of trouble. And he did nothing to earn it. Yeah, it's, they are writing so hard to get somewhere. Yeah. And they, they every time every time that something like this comes up, you can tell they're like, oh, wait, maybe maybe this is it. Maybe this is the plot. And they st- and you started with a great foot with Cooper going to the house and the, the coin falling on the picture. Oh, yeah. And then him noticing stuff and doing his detective work. And then. From Bobby taking the photos to Audrey handing them to Cooper to Cooper handing them to Denise to Denise turning Ernie, none of it is earned by Cooper, and it just and it's a disservice yeah. to Agent Cooper. That's my problem. Yeah, with yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. So, uh, but we can't end this episode without uh, checking in on James one last time, and it's the middle of the night, and James is sleeping, and he gets woken up by the sounds of arguing in the main house, and here comes that brother Malcolm back in with a drink. 
What? Okay, so let's just get, lose the earlier Malcolm scene yep. and have this scene where we actually hear yes. the arguments, right? Yep. Then her saying, it's not as bad as I made it out to be earlier, makes sense because she didn't make it out to be that bad and we didn't ever hear from Malcolm. Yep. And now we know there's arguing. And now Malcolm has a reason to talk to James and say, yeah, this stuff, man. Like yeah. this scene, aside from the fact that this entire plot line does, isn't necessary, but this scene works within that. And all this, all this scene really accomplishes is Malcolm, the brother, saying that he wants to kill Jeffrey. Yeah, and that—that's well, all it does. That's all we need, and it just—and uh, the whole Malcolm character is just so awkwardly handled. It's like James' plotline is taking place of uh, uh, the 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 soap opera that yes. we had in season yes, one. Yes, the um, invitation to love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I'd rather have invitation to love. By the way, me too. I, I really would like to know what happened to Montana. But um, anyway, so. That said, despite the train wreck of this episode, we do end on what is uh, probably second, my second favorite uh, scene of this episode, where yes. we're at the, the Briggs home, uh, Briggs house, where uh, young Bobby comes home late, and Mrs. Briggs is sitting on the couch in the dark, and she turns on the light when Bobby comes home, and she starts to cry, and Bobby consoles her, and it's a real mother-son kind of moment, and he says, you know, don't worry, Dad will be back, he's off, uh, you know, on another, you know, another thing, and she says she's not sure. Um, Bobby lights a cigarette and then proceeds to tell his mother about the dream that Major Briggs had that he shared with Bobby at the diner, if you remember that, uh, a while yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, and, and that was kind of a weird scene, but it now pays off. Yeah, it totally pays off. And I was like, oh, wow, nice to bring that back. Um, and they talk about Major Briggs and, and, and Mrs. Briggs is, tells some touching stories of, of the, the, the love and tenderness as a, a married couple that they have. And it's, it's a nice, warm scene. And the thunder and lightning is getting more intense. Uh, and then ultimately the lights go out. And then uh, a big flash of lightning. And we see in the, in the foyer of the house, there's Major Briggs in an old-timey aviator's outfit. Right? <laughs> leather jacket. No, no, I love that. The I leather, love that. Yeah, the leather jacket, that, the white that scarf. That is very classic Twin Peaks, too, where we just – time period sometimes doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It doesn't fit. It doesn't need to be explained. It was just cool to have Major Briggs appear as if he had been lost in the Bermuda Triangle in World War II, and I'm fine with that. I will argue that this might be the greatest mystery of all of Twin Peaks because yeah. we never find out why he's wearing an aviator's costume. Totally. Outfit. I mean, I know he's a pilot, but it's like a pilot costume from like World War One, and like yeah. never explains it. He he. So he appears. He immediately asks, "How long has he been gone?" And uh, Mrs. Briggs says, two days." And he says, "Strange. Seen much shorter." Mm-hmm. Uh, Had time um, to change outfits, though. Yeah. So he hugs his wife, and then he asks Bobby to put out that cigarette, and, that. and then fix him a cocktail, a strong one. And Bobby is just wide-eyed and complies, and immediately goes to get the drink. And then uh, Mrs. Briggs, they kiss, and he's uh, Mrs. Briggs asks if everything's all right, and he says, "Honestly, no, not exactly." <sighs> and then we get a shot of the lightning storm, the clouds, and the episode ends. So, this is great. This is a great, great scene. I mean, it, the, the shot of Major Briggs in that aviator outfit in the lightning was enough to make me forget all the other crap before it, uh, yeah. because that is such a great iconic moment that they just never explain, and I love it. I love well, it. <laughs> and and it, it's so lovely the way they crafted the scene where you think it's just Bobby and Betty bonding yep. in the absence of, of Garland. Uh, and it would it would have stood as a great scene on its own just as that. But then it was all a fake out 
to bring you this next thing, which yeah. is cool. And, I, and like I, I would love to have been in the writer's room and they're like, all right, Major Briggs comes back and let's put him in an aviator costume. Okay. Like, the, like that's yeah. the that's the whimsy that I expect from Twin Peaks and to never explain it. And like, it, it, you need more of that. That was that one shot had so much life. It, 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 that's the thing Absolutely. I remember for this episode. So, yeah. Agreed. All, all right. Well, time to check in with Diane and uh, share with her our notes for this episode. Tom, did you note anything in this episode worth noting? Uh, you know, the only thing I have for Diane this episode is uh, I really like that Ben's tie had a bus and street scene on it's, it. It's a very colorful Not, before tie. Before he changes into the Civil War outfit. Yeah, it's a very col- colorful tie. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> colorful and it's 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 whimsical. It's not the kind of tie you would expect Ben to be wearing, but I think it must be an indicator of his failing psyche. Right, or the bus going off the rails. Ah, there. Um, but well, that's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, sure it is. So uh, I noticed two things. One, uh, at the end of the episode in the Briggs household, uh, when Mrs. Briggs turns on the light, it's a lamp, and the base of the lamp is a uh, is an owl. Very nice. Which I thought was interesting. That um, owl is not what it seems. It's a lamp. It's a lamp, yeah. And earlier in the episode, when they're investigating Dougie's death in the Great Northern Hotel and the book we had mentioned, My Secret Life, uh, written by Chris Garrity, um, that is a fake book. All the other books in the scene were real, the Kama Sutra, the, the sonnets and things like that. But My Secret Life uh, by Chris Garrity. Chris Garrity was actually an assistant director on several episodes of Twin Peaks leading up to this. Nice. So, and that's so, a great Twin Peaks Easter egg. Love yeah, that. Exactly. So excellent. All right. So time to check into the uh, town hall or the roadhouse uh, to get some feedback from you, the audience. And as always, you could get in on the action by emailing us at feedback, feedback at damn fine podcast. And you could be like Chad Terry, who wrote in and says, I've been waiting to send you a message. But now that I've listened to the episode where they reveal the killer, this train wreck is soon approaching. What the hell is with this James story and this couple of weirdos he ends up with? I've rewatched the series many times, and this is the most painful part of the entire series. I even got my wife to watch with me once, and when we got to this point, she threw her hands up in the air and said, I'm out, never to return again. The Donna James song had her teetering on the edge, but this is what broke the camel's back. So many camels. So many camels. Um, And he says he can't wait until we get to the movie Firewalk with me, and neither can I. Um, Uh, Yeah, we will continue to look for signs of why the James storyline exists. Maybe we'll find one this time. Uh, but we'll, we'll do that for you, Chad. Yeah. I'm, I'm more excited to talk about firewalk with me and our plans for that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and Chad, I feel your pain. You know, my, you know how I feel about the James storylines, but, uh, but yeah, so we are on the track to finish season two. We're going to finish season two, uh, about a week or so before season three starts And in between that week, we're going to release our episode where we talk about firewalk with me. So, uh, it is coming. You can expect that in May. It's going to be a big episode cause it's a movie. Uh, and, and I gotta tell you, I love Harry Dean Stanton. And so I might take up an hour of that episode just to talk about Harry Dean Stanton. So who is also apparently in the new series. I know. So, I'm very excited because yeah. he's 90. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, oh gosh. Uh, so yeah, so that should come out May 18th ish, somewhere yeah. around think, there. Think around Keep an there. eye out for that. And then the next episode after that will be our prep episode for the premiere day on May 21st. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, that's going to, so we'll, so we've got content planned for you leading up to season three. We're going to get you in a good place. So you'll have everything that you need going into season three. And I just, I cannot wait for that. So yeah. If you want to know more about what we're doing on May 21st, by all means, you might want to back us on Patreon. Yes. Hint, hint. 
So, <laughs> so uh, yes, yeah, so you can you can email us at feedback at Damn Fine Podcast to let us know what you think of the James storyline or anything else about Twin Peaks. I want to hear your observations, your history of Twin Peaks. I got to tell you, hearing from all of you in the audience is one of the, one of the highlights of the day. I love getting the emails, so please keep them coming. Um, you can also comment on this episode at damnfinepodcast.com. Uh, and as Tom mentioned, you can support us at patreon.com slash damnfinepodcast. We thank the patrons for your support. You're the guys who are keeping the lights on here at, at Damn Fine Podcast headquarters in our own little... Uh, uh, bookhouse corner of the bookhouse yes the uh, flickering fluorescence yes, exactly. here at our bookhouse uh but as tom mentioned we're going to be revealing our plans leading up to season three and we're going to be doing some very special stuff for the patrons only so go to patreon.com slash damn fine podcast and get involved today um and you can follow us over on twitter at damn fine cast uh, or on facebook at facebook.com slash damn fine podcast so it's going to wrap it up for the black widow and i guess the black widow was lana right yeah, I mean, she, I don't, she was wearing dark. She was wearing black. In oh, because she's poisonous. Yeah. She killed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Get it. She's the Black Widow. So there it is. Got it. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Tune in next time next week when we'll be back with season two, episode 13 or episode 20 of the entire run or episode 21 if you count the pilot. Uh, but no matter what the Germans call next week's episode, checkmate. <laughs> All right. So until then, I'm Ron. I'm Tom. 